the world of Islam, culture, religion, and politics. Welcome to the World of Islam podcast. This is Amin Tais. Today we will continue discussing the Islamic scripture, the Quran. So how can we define the Quran in an academic sense? A definition I find particularly useful is that uh, provided by the late professor uh, Muhammad Arkun of the Sorbonne. Uh, I like this definition uh, because of its precise and exhaustive character. In French, uh, Professor Arkun wrote, Le Coran est un corpus fini et ouvert dénoncé, en langue arabe, auquel nous ne pouvons avoir accès qu'à travers le texte graphiquement fixé après le 9e ou 10e siècle. La totalité du texte, ainsi fixée, a fonctionné simultanément comme une œuvre écrite et comme une parole liturgique. A tentative translation would be that the Quran is a finished or complete corpus of open statements in the Arabic language to which we only have access through the text graphically fixed after the 9th or 10th century AD. The totality of the text, thus fixed, has simultaneously functioned as a written work and as liturgical speech. Now, there is a lot of information included in this definition. Let's try to unpack it. So the Qur'an is a corpus, which means a collection, that is finished or complete, meaning that it had an end at a particular time of history, i.e. the end of Muhammad's career as a prophet in the 7th century AD, uh, in uh, 632 AD, uh, according to the Islamic tradition. And this finished collection contains open statements, statements that are pregnant with meaning, uh, open to interpretation by the original uh, audience, and open to interaction with the original audience. And importantly, this corpus is only accessible to us today through a text that was graphically fixed possibly by the 9th century AD. This point highlights that the Arabic script was very rudimentary at the time of the coming to the world of the Qur'an, and that it took multiple steps over long decades for the Arabic script to fully develop and for the Qur'anic text to be written in that completed script. The totality of the text fixed in this fashion, has had a double function. It functioned as a written text, the meanings of which have kept generations of Muslim scholars busy, and it has also functioned as liturgical speech, which means that Muslims have continued to use the Qur'an in an oral form, or as oral performance, mostly in worship. I would add to these two functions that Professor Arkun mentions a third function, and this function is that of a sacred object that has had its own life beyond what it says. And this is one of the points I want to highlight uh, today.
While uh, Muslims have throughout the centuries looked at the Quran for guidance in their lives, we must understand that for the majority of Muslims in the past as well as nowadays, this is not the dominant way in which they have experienced the Quran, or at least not the exclusive way in which they have experienced the Quran. Most Muslims, past and present, were not and are not Arabic speakers, and so they had and have no direct access to what the Quran actually says. Even among those who were Arabic speakers, the majority was illiterate. In addition, many words of the Arabic language of the Quran were already archaic and not easily understood even by scholars living uh, a century or two after uh, the message of Muhammad. And uh, translating the Quran to other languages is a very recent phenomenon among Muslims. Until very recently in history, Muslim scholars were against translating the Quran. And even today, when translations are available, uh, Muslims are very quick to point out that these are not the Quran in English or French or Indonesian, etc. Rather, um, these are uh, no more than flawed human attempts at providing non-Arabic speakers with access to what the only Quran, the Arabic Quran, uh, the Word of God, is saying. So, the main way most Muslims have experienced the Quran was not through a direct encounter with the meaning of the text. Instead, the Quran was, and still is, first and foremost, experienced as an object of devotion, a sacred object. This is a piece of divinity, the speech of God, Kalam Allah, that has entered the mundane world. This translated to a high respect given to the Mus'haf, the, the written uh, collection of the Qur'an, and to the recitation of the Qur'an. For instance, the Mus'haf is always placed above all other objects. Similarly, a, a piece of paper containing a Qur'anic verse is never to be thrown away in the garbage. Um, and before grabbing the Mus'haf to read it, one must have ritual purity, having performed ablution. Um, you would also often encounter people who would kiss the Mus'haf as a sign of respect or to get its blessing. And um, many Muslims uh, have uh, also kept amulets containing verses of the Qur'an for protection. Uh, others never fail to recite particular verses to heal the sick or or to bring about wealth, or to bring about children, etc. So it is no surprise that uh, those who are hafiz, those who have memorized the whole Qur'an, are highly respected, including those who memorize by rote without understanding it, without even knowing Arabic. In addition, uh, those Qur'an, reciters, uh, singular qari', who perform public readings of the Qur'an in a beautiful style and with a beautiful voice, 
are very admired. It is not uncommon in a modern setting uh, to see people in a country like Egypt gather around a TV set to watch and listen to a famous reciter like the late Abdul Basit Abdul Samad who died in 1988 and whose cassette tapes sold more than a pop star. We could add to this discussion the case of Quranic calligraphy and its role in art and architecture, but we will postpone that discussion to a future episode dealing exclusively with that subject. So, what we need to take with us here is that the Quran, as objects of devotion, is central to the religious experience of the average Muslim, past and present. As far as the meaning of the Qur'an and its teachings are concerned, it is also important to understand that it has been the prerogative of a scholarly elite that we will also discuss in the future. At this point, I would like to switch gears and talk a little about um, some of the main themes of the Qur'an and how they fit together. But before I do that, um, I need to stress that such an exercise is subjective. Partly because of the original characteristics of the Qur'an as oral discourse, uh, the attempt to gather and organize the themes of the Qur'an is no easy task. And it's a task that will depend on how uh, one decides to approach the text. With that in mind, it is safe to start with God, Allah, as an important theme of the Qur'an. The Qur'an, uh, of course, presents itself as the word of God. God is the anchor of the message. The Qur'an insists over and over that God is one, and much of its polemics against those who seem to reject the Qur'anic message is over this very point of the oneness of God, Tawheed. So, for example, uh, in chapter 18, verse 110, this is Surah Al-Kahf, قُلْ إِنَّمَا أَنَا بَشَرٌ مِثْلُكُمْ يُوحَى إِلَيَّ أَنَّمَا إِلَاهُكُمْ إِلَاهٌ وَاحِدٌ فَمَنْ كَانَ يَرْجُوا لِقَاءَ رَبِّهِ فَلْيَعْمَلْ عَمَلًا صَالِحًا وَلَا يُشْرِكْ بِعِبَادَةِ رَبِّهِ أَحَدًا Say, I am only a man like you. To whom has been revealed that your God is one God? So whomever hopes to meet his Lord, let him do good work and not associate in the worship of his Lord anyone. So the Quran severely attacks those who commit shirk or associate the created to the creator. For example, chapter 4, verse 48, this is Surah An-Nisa. Indeed, God does not forgive that a partner should be associated to him. While he forgives anything else to whom he pleases, he who associates others with God, has indeed devised a tremendous sin. The Qur'an 
extends this position to those who worship their own low desires at the expense of God. For example, in chapter 45, verse 23, uh, this is Surat Al-Jathiyah, أَفَرَأَيْتَ مَنِ اتَّخَذَ إِلَهَهُ هَوَاهُ وَأَضَلَّهُ اللَّهُ عَلَىٰ عِلْمٍ وَخَتَمَ عَلَىٰ سَمْعِهِ وَقَلْبِهِ وَجَعَلَ عَلَىٰ بَصَرِهِ غِشَاوَةِ فَمَنْ يَهْدِيهِ مِنْ بَعْدِ اللَّهِ أَفَلَا تَذَكَّرُونَ Have you seen he who has taken his vain desire as his God? God has led him astray knowingly and has sealed up his hearing and heart and put a veil over his vision. So, who will guide him after God? Will you not then be reminded? I uh, would like to also add that the bulk of the Quranic attack on al-mushrikun, the associators, seems to be directed at the Meccan polytheists. The Muslim tradition maintains that, and so do most uh, modern historians. But there has been some recent studies uh, making a strong argument that al-mushrikun in question might be the people of the book, particularly Christians. In all cases, uh, the Quran clearly attacks the idea of the divinity of Jesus, and we will go back to the Christology of the Quran in an upcoming episode, for Jesus indeed is, a, uh, is an important figure in the Quran. Let's add that the oneness of God in the Quran is also often linked to other attributes of God. Like in Christianity and Rabbinical Judaism, God is omnipotent, is all-powerful, He is omniscient, is all-knowing, and also all-benevolent, or all-good. God also has other attributes to be understood in a maximalist fashion. Amongst these attributes, we must note some that are central to the way the Qur'an arguably constructs its message. There are a number of names that highlight God as the origin of everything. He is Al-Khaliq, the Creator. Al-Muhyi, the Giver of Life. He is Al-Awwal, the First One. He is Al-Musawwir, the Shaper of Forms. He is Al-Mubdi', the Initiator. For example, uh, chapter 6, verse 102. This is Surat Al-An'am. ذَلِكُمُ اللَّهُ رَبُّكُمْ لَا إِلَهَ إِلَّا هُوْ خَالِقُ كُلِّ شَيْءٍ فَعْبُدُوهُ وَهُوَ عَلَى كُلِّ شَيْءٍ وَكِيلٌ That is God, your Lord. There is no deity except Him, the Creator of all things. So worship Him, and of all things He takes care. And there are names that establish uh, God as the sustainer. He is Ar-Razzaq, the provider. He is Al-Kareem, the bountiful. He is Ar-Rahim, the merciful. He is Al-Wahhab, the generous giver or bestower. For example, in uh, chapter 51, verse 58, this is Surat Al-Dhariyat, إِنَّ اللَّهَ هُوَ الرَّزَّاقُ ذُو الْقُوَّةِ الْمَتِينَ Indeed, it is God who is the provider, the one who possesses power and is steadfast. 
The third group of names establishes God as the final judge. He is Al-Hakam, the arbitrator. He is Al-Adl, the just. He is Al-Ba'ith, the resurrector. He is Al-Hasib, the bringer of judgment. He is Al-Muntaqim, the avenger. He is Al-Qahar, the subduer. He is Al-Raqib, the watchful. He is Al-Shaheed, the witness. He is Al-Ghafoor, the forgiven. Chapter 22 verse, verses 6 and 7 This is Surah Al-Hajj That is because God is the truth and because he gives life to the dead and because he is able to do all things and because the hour is coming there is no doubt about it, and because God will resurrect those in the grave. So, all these groups of names together, this link from creator to sustainer to judge, gives us an idea as to how the concept of God functions in the Quran. As I mentioned in the previous episode, the Quran is arguably not a theological presentation on God, the goal is to guide men, to be a reminder, dhikra, as the Qur'an puts it itself. The late University of Chicago professor Fazlur Rahman, who died in 1988, sums up nicely what I'm trying to relate here about what the names of God in the Qur'an might tell us about its message. He writes, quote, the main points in this ceaseless, tremendous thrust for reminding men are number one, that everything except God is contingent upon God, including the entirety of nature, which has a metaphysical and a moral aspect. Number two, that God, with all his might and glory, is essentially the all-merciful God. And number three, that both these aspects necessarily entail a proper relationship between God and man, a relationship of the served and the servant, and consequently also a proper relationship between man and man. By a natural necessity, as it were, these normative relationships entail the law of judgment upon man, both as individual and in his collective or social existence. Once we have grasped the, these three points, we will have understood the absolute centrality of God in the entire system of existence to a very large extent, because the aim of the Qur'an is man and his behavior, not God. End of quote. With this, uh, I will close the episode, hoping that you will join me again next time. I leave you in peace. Assalamu alaikum.